Well, good morning, everyone, and uh, welcome to Grace. Glad that you're here. Sure that you're angry, upset, devastated, disillusioned at the state of football in the state of Ohio. I am as well. If I had a cat, I would have kicked it last night, but uh, glad that we're together. I don't have a cat because I'm a Christian, uh, but uh, I'm glad that you guys could be here. <laughs> we're in the, I'm joking. Don't email me. I won't read them anyways. Uh, we're in the middle of a series right now we call The Creation of Christmas, and uh, this is what we're doing with this series. It's actually a lot of fun, is we're kind of looking at the, the epic story of Christmas, so from kind of the beginning to the end, and by the beginning, I mean like the beginning of uh, humanity. So we started last weekend in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 3, and looked at kind of the reason why Christmas was created and uh, what God was doing, what he was responding to, why he responded to it in the way that he did. I encourage you, if you weren't able to be here, you can uh, go online uh, to our website, graceohio.org, uh, hit the Bath Campus, that's the one you're at right now, and you can watch that and, or listen to it or get a free podcast or iTunes if you want. Uh, everything there is free, so you can do that, kind of fill in those blanks. But we started that conversation uh, last weekend, and I want to kind of pull it forward, really got into the, the why of Christmas, what God was thinking, kind of what his thought process was, what he was responding to. And I want to pull it forward kind of into the broad view of our present day, and then next weekend we'll land it kind of in our family room, in, in our, uh, our lives a bit, We're talking about why, how, how do we download that, and uh, how God's trying to speak to us through the creation of Christmas. So I encourage you to, uh, to be a part of that, catch up with it. As I was looking at the, uh, the Christmas story, actually, when I think about the Bible period, one of the things that I think is important when we, when we read the Bible is to remember that any one of us could be in it, okay? Any one of us could be in it. Sometimes when we think about the Bible, we're like, oh, the Bible. Every time you pick up the Bible, you hear a Gregorian chant in your mind. And we think of people in the Bible, and we think that they're kind of super saints or, or those kind of things, and they're, they're really not. They're, they're mostly ordinary people that God interacted with in extraordinary ways and give a, 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 have, bring Jesus to the planet at a different time, a different place, a different slice of history. And you and I could be in the Bible really easily. These guys, when they set out, they didn't, they didn't set out to make the Bible. It wasn't a contest, Right. It's just God telling his story, and God tells his story through the human experience so that we can understand it. It's, it's how it makes sense to us, being human beings. The mysteries of God, the wonder of God, the glory of God has to be kind of brought into our experience. And so the Bible is God interacting with humanity, revealing truths about his mind and his character through the human experience so that we can process it, so we can uh, kind of weave it into our lives, we can look, we can learn, we can understand, it makes sense to us, and that's why that, that is. And so these folks are kind of normal folks, and when you look at their stories and you look at the circumstances that they're kind of tied around, if we were there and we were participating in that, those narratives the way they were, uh, we would have responded much the same way that they did. And that's kind of the, the fun of it and part of the, the wonder of it is I can look at what they did, I can look at kind of their successes, I can look at their failures. Most importantly, I can look at what God was trying to achieve and what he was teaching, and then I can draw from that because it's human beings, I can draw from it, 
pulled into my life and uh, pulled that relationship with God in my life as well as kind of those lessons that God would want me to know when you think about the Bible. So I was doing that this week as I was thinking about Christmas and thinking about this series. I just started kind of embracing the humanity around it. And it was fascinating to do that because I, I really saw myself. I bet you, you will too. I'm like, oh man, I could have done that. Ooh, I, I am that way. Yikes, that's, that's simple. I, could, I would have done the same thing, just kind of knowing my personality a little bit. And you start to see yourself and then you start to see what God is trying to teach through that. You can kind of import that into your life. So when you look at the, look at the Christmas narrative, you see this too. In fact, if you got your Bibles, grab them and open up to the book of Luke, Luke chapter 2. So it's Matthew, Mark, Luke. And Luke chapter 2 is probably, if you're familiar with the Christmas story, it's probably the one you're most familiar with of all the Gospels. We tend to talk about Luke 2 the most. If you're familiar with Charlie Brown, it's the one that Linus reads in the Christmas special. I'm just saying, it's the way that it is. So it's the one that we kind of know when you see Luke chapter 2. And there's several different human beings in Luke chapter 2. There's a lot to kind of learn through that. But the guys that jump out to me, especially for this conversation, are the shepherds. I like the shepherds. I can relate to the shepherds. I kind of grew up in a shepherding kind of a family, kind of a, a lower middle class, blue collar working kind of fellows. That's what the shepherds were like. And it fascinates me for several reasons that the announcement of God's arrival on earth was made to the shepherds. So you see it in verse 8 of Luke chapter 2. It says this, and there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over the flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He's the Messiah, the Lord. And so the angel choir then breaks out into the song. It's this big, big deal. But the announcement is, hey, guys, a savior has been born in the town of David is Bethlehem. And his name is Christ the Lord. And if you know the story, they go and they find him and they worship him and they tell everybody about him. And the reason that God announced his arrival to the shepherds, there's a bunch of different things there. Certainly, it's because they were of lowly position. And so God was making a statement about his own humility. Uh, He was making a statement about the inclusiveness of the gospel, that you don't have to be kind of this deeply orthodox Jewish person to receive the gospel. You don't have to have the education. You don't do those kind of things to receive the gospel. All that is true, and it's very, very good application. What I find fascinating about the shepherds is their geography, their geography. Jesus grew up in Nazareth, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, but he was born in Bethlehem. His parents, Mary and Joseph, had gone there to pay their taxes And so he's in this town, Bethlehem, and the geography of Bethlehem is very fascinating because Bethlehem is five and a half miles outside of Jerusalem, okay? Outside of Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem in the ancient world would have been the center of all Jewish teaching. So the temple was there at this time, the rabbis, the education, all the PhDs, they were there in Jerusalem. And the Jewish culture and the Jewish religion would have been the keeper of the Old Testament 
they would have been the ones who would have known and proclaimed that there was a Messiah coming because the Old Testament scriptures speak to that. And so that vision and that truth and that proclamation was all hubbed in Jerusalem. It's kind of the, the Vatican of the Jewish faith, right? Or the Rome of the Jewish faith. It was all centered right there. And that was five and a half miles from Bethlehem. The shepherds were outside the town of Bethlehem. And we don't know how far, but many scholars, I think I agree with them, Many scholars believe that the shepherds were tending the flock that belonged to the temple in Jerusalem. So there were special sheep that were raised up just to be used for sacrifices in the temple. And that's a bunch of the Old Testament stuff. And that was very much a part of the Jewish tradition. So the priests, the rabbis, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, all these guys had their own flock of kind of holy sheep just outside of the city, in between probably Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So five and a half miles, and the shepherds were probably even closer to that, to the hub of Jerusalem. In Jerusalem were all these people, well-intentioned, devoted, uh, sincere people. You see in the Bible later on, Jesus will scold some of these Jewish leaders. That's if you ever want to see Jesus honked off, He's usually honked off at a self-righteous religious person. Uh, He was never honked off at sinners, but self-righteous religious people did not get along well with Jesus. So you see that in the Bible, but there's there's thousands of these people, right? So even even for us, right, even in our church, most of us are loving and kind, and there's a few jerks, right? Don't point. That's not nice at all to point. But... And this was the same way. So most of these people were sincere and devoted. They were practitioners of a religion that they believed deeply in. They were sincerely looking and anticipating the Messiah. He shows up five and a half miles from them. His birth announcement is made by a choir of angels. There's an astronomical anomaly, the star of Bethlehem, which occurred, there's extra biblical history that documents that that star actually occurred. And then there's shepherds. The Bible says the shepherds went, they found the baby, then they went out and they were telling everybody, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah, we found the Messiah. This is, in this ancient culture, this is an oral culture. So the word or news spread by word of mouth. It was like the Facebook of its day. It's called Shepherd Book. It wasn't, I'm lying. But it would spread very, very quickly. You didn't wait for something to be centralized. So you didn't wait for CNN to affirm it, right? So you have a choir of angels, which would have made a scene. You have a star, which was prophesied in the Old Testament. You have shepherds speaking the fulfillment of scriptures, details that they wouldn't have known unless they experienced it. And you have that all happening say, three to five miles from the hub of the place that's full of sincere people who are looking for the promised Messiah to show up. And they missed it. They missed it. In fact, it's fascinating to, to realize that they were so locked in to their religious practices that they had become, I call it, religiously blind. They were so locked into their study and so locked into their traditions and so locked into their habits that they missed the very thing they had dedicated their lives to seeing. 
Jesus addresses this later on in his life. He's talking to some of these leaders in the book of John. You can flip over there, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. Chapter 5, it's page 743 in those Bibles in the chairs. John chapter 5, Jesus is talking to some of these leaders. And some of these guys would have been alive when he was born. Jesus is probably about 30 or so-ish, right, when he's having this conversation with them. So some of these guys would have certainly been alive when he was born. And he says this in John chapter 5, verses 37 and following. He's talking to them, and he says, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you. For you do not know, or you do not believe the one he sent. You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you will have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, but, you, but yet you refuse to come to me and have life. And Jesus is looking at these guys five and a half, three, three to five and a half miles away from Jerusalem. He's like, guys, you got your noses so buried in the scripture that you have missed the salvation that you've spent your life anticipating. You're practicing a religion and you're missing a relationship with your Savior. You practice a religion, but you have not come to me to have life. You missed it. Now, I can, I don't know about you guys, but I can handle this one or two ways. I can look at these guys, and I can think, well, yeah, you dip thoughts. I mean, how do you miss that? There's a choir of angels, and there's a star, and there's shepherds going crazy, and everybody knows that when shepherds go wild, you've got to pay attention to them, right? And you can, you can look at that, or I can look and say, That's a, I'm actually exactly like that. I grew up as a religiously blind person. I went to church four times a week, went to a religious school five days a week, and studied the Bible in order to take tests on it. And I did not meet Jesus as my Lord and Savior until I was a junior in college. I am and was a religiously blind person. Very normal. I could have made the Bible easy on this one because that's the way that I am. Now, here's the thing. Most of us who would get up on a Sunday morning, come to church, could really easily slip into this category. Because most of us either grew up with some level of a faith tradition, or at a minimum, we would think of ourselves as spiritual. I'm sure there's a few of you that your mom drug you, or you told grandma you'd come, or she won't buy you lunch. I got all that, right? But most of us are here by our own will. We easily can grow up religiously blind, right? Praying memorized prayers, going to stale confession, doing things out of dutiful obligation, pairing our religion with our patriotism, right? It, it, it's all church. We go to church, we go to church. Why are you here? Because it's Sunday. It's what we do. It's easy. It's easy. And here's the sad thing. You can be amazingly faithful to the practice of your religion and not even know that Jesus has shown up. Have no relationship with him. You can be incredibly sincere about the practice of your religion and miss a vibrant, personal, saving relationship with 
Christ. People in the Bible did it. And I did it. All of us can do it, right? I was thinking about another group of people. I got to thinking about the people that Jesus grew up with, like the people in Nazareth, right? So he's born in Bethlehem because of the, of the IRS. He's over there in Bethlehem. Comes home, but he grows up in Nazareth, right? Can you imagine growing up with Jesus? It's, it's hilarious to think about. Like, you went to school with Jesus. You're taking your math test. You're like, Jesus, do you know the answer? Yes. I know everything. Can you tell me? No, I do not sin. Ah! You know, you just want to punch him in the face, right? So it's like, these people grew up with Jesus in Nazareth, and it's fascinating how they interact with him. They're, they're human beings, okay? But they made the Bible. It's fascinating how they interact with him. Go back to the left a little bit to the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter 6. And you see Jesus. Now, again, this is later on. This isn't Christmas. This is later on. He's interacting with them. He's just interacting with the people that he grew up with. I'm sorry, Mark. Matthew, Mark. I said Matthew. I meant Mark. Mark chapter 6. So look at this. Verse 1. So Jesus is traveling around. He left there. He went to his hometown. This was Nazareth. Accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked? What's this wisdom that has been given to him? What are these remarkable miracles he is performing? Verse 3, isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown, among his relatives and in his own home. He could not do any miracles there except lay hands on a few sick people and heal them. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. It's fascinating, 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 fascinating. They look at Jesus and they recognize truths about Jesus, right? So they're like, he's teaching, like, where did he get this insight from? Then they he is so wise. He is, that's incredibly wise. What, these miracles? He's performing, how did he perform these miracles? And then it's, wait a minute, isn't that Jesus? Isn't he the carpenter? Didn't he build our table? Didn't he fix our door? Yeah, it's Jesus. I played football with his brother, Simon. He never got off the JV squad. Aren't these his sisters? I went out on a date with a sister once. Never dated her again. Came back. Jesus told me everything we did. <laughs> right? Look at He's wise. He does miracles. He's so insightful. And they took offense at him. I crack you up. They took offense at him while recognizing that all of this is true about him, it offended them. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? A prophet is not without honor except in his own hometown among his relatives. These folks in Nazareth struggled with what I've called callous familiarity. Callous familiarity. They were so used to Jesus, so used to who he was and what he was like, that it now offended them that he would somehow position himself as God in their lives. Callous familiarity. Now, again, we can look and we're like, oh, I would never, if I grew up with Jesus, that would make all my faith make sense to me. 
If I could hang out with Jesus, I wouldn't have any more questions. Actually, if you grew up with Jesus, you probably would be something like this. This is why I love the book of James. The book of James was written by Jesus' brother. And Jesus' brother, James, grew up with Jesus and actually believed that Jesus was God to the point that he died for it. I mean, how, how impressed does your brother have to be to die for the claim that you're God? We live in a culture where Jesus is everywhere, right? He's everywhere. Especially if we have any kind of a faith tradition. I ask Jesus. There's another song about Jesus. Oh, it's a Christmas song. Boy, I'm, glad, I'm really glad they redid that one. I'm sick of singing that the old way. You go to our, anywhere in our culture, especially this time of year, Jesus is woven through. I went to the mall the other day. I went to the dark side. I went to the pit. I went to the bowels of the mall the other day. And I, on purpose, I listened, and I heard, Oh, come all ye faithful. I heard Silent Night. I heard Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And then apparently he committed a felony and killed an old woman by running over her. Right? I heard all that mixed together, and I thought, Oh, it's Christmas. I know I struggle with this one. I can become very easily callously familiar with Christ. And I know that sometimes in my own life, I I have to step back from my friend, Jesus' words, not mine. I have to step back from the one that I co-labor with, Jesus' words, not mine. I have to step back, and I have to remember who my friend is. I can take his grace for granted very easily. I can take his forgiveness for granted very easily. Yeah, it's not, it's not really a sin. It's kind of my weakness. I got a weakness. I can take his mercy for granted very easily. And I'm just going to ignore that part. I mean, come on, it's not that big of a deal. What's he going to do, strike me dead? Probably not. I can take the holy, righteous, perfect, sanctified, just, creator, and sustainer of the heavens and the earth, and I can treat him like a tradition or a holiday. I can look at my friend and dumb down my friendship with him to where he's almost my buddy that we watch the game with instead of a God who has welcomed and embraced me and adopted me as a son. I can become callously familiar with the one who holds the breath of my life in his hands. And sometimes, I don't know about you, I have to to pull back a little bit. Let all of that register so that it orders and it defines my friendship with God correctly. Because it's very easy to become callous to what I am so familiar with. The other way that I think we struggle to see and hear God is in the Christmas story. If you go this time to the book of Matthew, chapter 2. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are four apostles oftentimes bringing their unique perspectives to the same events. And Matthew brings in a part of the Christmas story 
that Luke doesn't. He presses into it in more detail, Matthew chapter 2. You know about, we call them wise men. The Bible calls them magi. They travel from the east. They're looking for Jesus. They're following this astronomical anomaly, the star. So they're kind of tracking it. They don't show up at the manger scene. That your, your nativity is incorrect. The, the, the wise men aren't there. It's not a sin if you have them on your piano like I do. I'm just saying, it didn't play that way in the Bible. They came a couple years later, and this is their arrival in Matthew chapter 2. The Magi show up, and they stopped, and they interacted with the governor or the king of the region. His name was Herod. They would have had to get permission to kind of come into the area, and they're asking because they assume choir angels, star, all the teaching about a Messiah, they kind of assume that he would know about it. So they stop and they tell Herod, hey, we're looking for the king of the Jews. He's been born. Herod freaks out about that quite a bit, sees it as a threat to his power, but plays coy with it. Verse 13, God warns Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, about Herod's plots, kind of his insecurity. Verse 13, chapter 2 of Matthew, when they had gone, an angel, that's the Magi, when the Magi had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said, take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up and he took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the, the Lord had said through the prophet, get out of, e- uh, out of Egypt, I will call my son. When Herod realized that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and in the vicinity who were two years old and under in accordance with the time that he had learned from the Magi. Herod is a fascinating person because salvation shows up in Herod's backyard, Herod had all kinds of opportunity to, at a minimum, investigate salvation, at a maximum, receive it. So all of it, Jerusalem was under his control. He could have gone to all these Jewish scholars and said, tell me about the Messiah, this one born king of the Jews. I don't understand it. You're saying salvation comes from him? Tell me. He could have come up to speed on it. He could have commissioned all of his military. Hey, go find this marriage. I mean, the wise men just tracked him down from hundreds, if not thousands of miles away. He's in Herod's backyard, maybe five, three, five, six miles. To find this kid and his family, I want to interact. I want to understand this. Had lots of freedom, lots of opportunities, made a decision, and he made a decision to harden his heart. So instead of looking at God's arrival as something welcomed, he, he looked at it as something that he resented. God is here to mess with me. God is here to throw me off my game. God is here to make me do things I don't want to do. And so with a hard heart, Herod lashes out, right? Goes on this infanticide killing streak, and he tries to annihilate all the males trying somehow to strike down Jesus. God intervenes, warns, and protects Mary and Joseph and his son. The Bible says that the natural condition of the human heart is like Herod's. It's hard. And the Bible says that naturally, without Christ in my life, 
I'm an enemy of God. I strike out at God like this. I war with God. And we talked about this in great detail last week. And I encourage you, again, go out to that website and you can watch that there. But that's the deal, right? We all have sinned. We all fall short. We're born that way. And this is the natural condition of our reaction to God. I don't want you in my life. I don't want you to interfere. I want to do what I want to do. So I'll define you how I want to define you. But don't you mess with what I got going on. And that was Herod. And that's us. And I can look at Herod and I think, man, what a jerk, right? And I can look in the mirror and think, I'm that. I'm exactly like that. That was me. I knew God inside and out, up and down, knew the Bibles backwards and forward. But I didn't want my life controlled by God. Right? I just wanted him to take care of me and let my car start, and get me through college and let the Buckeyes win, that kind of stuff. Right? The hard heart. So you look at these people, and you look at them interacting with Jesus, and and I I don't know about you guys, I just kind of see myself all through it. One One who grew up religiously blind, one who even today struggles with a, with a callous familiarity, and one who outside of Christ was hard hearted. It's kind of the human condition, and it's what we're like. And when we don't see God correctly or hear God correctly, we don't translate that into our lives correctly, and we're just these people. Many of these people were sincere, good-hearted people. They just weren't seeing, hearing, translating well, and they wind up missing who Christ is and what he's really all about. Now, here's the tragedy of this whole thing. The tragedy of the whole thing is that we tend to interact with God the exact opposite way that God interacts with us. Isn't that fascinating? We tend to interact with God in the exact opposite way that God interacts with us. So God doesn't ask for religion. Never did. The the reason we come to church isn't to practice religion. We come to church to be together and to interact with each other, which the Bible tells us to do. But God never asked for this rote ritual, these memorized prayers, these stale confessions. Never. Never, ever. So he doesn't interact with us in like this systematic way. Fall into my system and I will bless you. He doesn't do that. He interacts with us in a very personalized way because he doesn't want religion from us. He actually wants relationship from us. God isn't callously familiar with us. He he doesn't interact with us that way. God isn't up in heaven looking down and saying, oh, my word, there's almost 7 billion of them. This whole fruitful multiply thing has gotten ridiculous, right? The Bible says that God knows me very personally, cares about my personal life very deeply. He knows the minute details of my life and cares and sympathizes and is tied into that. He never gets so overwhelmed with humans that he categorizes us, throws us in a religious system and says, just act like this. No, he drives himself into the very heart of who we are. And far from having a hard heart toward us, God's heart is open, it's loving, it's warm, it embraces us. In fact, one of the names of Jesus that I love 
One of his titles or his names is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. It's the exact opposite. Instead of a hard heart, man, you guys blew it. What'd you eat the fruit for? Oh, you bunch of dim thongs. Can't you get your act together? He does the exact opposite. He softens his heart and says, I am Emmanuel. I've come to be with you. I'm embracing the details of your life. I want to be in relationship, not religion, with you. I want to walk through life with you. I love you. I sacrifice for you. That's why I showed up on the planet. I put skin on, showed up in the form of a human being, fully God, fully man, so that you could translate me. I so passionately want to know you and be known by you that I've gone to these extraordinary links so that I, the mystery of God, makes sense to you on some level. And the way that we tend to interact with God, God literally does the exact opposite for us because he wants us to be with him. He wants us to know him. He wants us to interact with him. In fact, one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is in Jeremiah. You can flip back there. It's in the Old Testament. Jeremiah chapter 29. God is talking to a, a group of people who have become callously familiar and religiously blind, and some of them are very, very hard-hearted. He's talking to the people of Israel who were, kind of his, were his chosen people, and he has punished them to try to wake them up to their lack of relationship with him. And so he's telling them about this exile that they're going to be in, and yet you see his heart come through because the people are responding, oh, I can't believe, God, you're doing this to us. Oh, God, you know, I know all about that, those plagues and those miracles. Whatever, God, grew up hearing that stuff. Oh, you're around me all the time. Oh, God, we're going to practice our religion and somehow you're going to show up. God says, no, 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 no. I, I somehow have to wake you up to this relationship, so I'm going to allow you to go into exile, but I want you to know something about me. If your heart will shift, if you'll open up your heart to me the way that I've opened up my heart to you, this is how we'll interact. Verse 11, chapter 29 of Jeremiah, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you, not to harm you, plans to give you hope and a future. Then you will call out on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart, and I will be found by you. When you soften your heart toward me and you break out of this religious blindness, quit just doing stuff to do it, and soften your heart in a relationship with me, I, I want that. In fact, my plan for you is not for you to set up into the system. My plan is to prosper you and bless you and give you this fruitful relationship with me. When you break away from this callous familiarity and get lost again in the wonder and the majesty and the depth of my love, and you cry out to me with humility and gratitude, I will hear you. I'm waiting to hear you. And when you soften your heart and, and drop come your fist and open up your arms to my embrace, when you seek for me, when you look for me, I will be found. I want to be found. I don't want to keep you at a distance. I am Emmanuel. I am here to be with you. And I'm not the one that has closed down relationship with you. You have done that with me. But the minute you shift and your heart opens up, I'm right here because I love you. 
Guys, as I look at the Bible, I think, there, I think there's only about four responses that we can have to God. There, there might be five. You could argue for a fifth one, and I might listen to you, but you'll be wrong. I'll be right. So. But I think, there's about, I think there's about four responses we can have to God. Okay? The first one is obvious. It's this. I don't know who you are or what you think you've done, but my life isn't going the way I want my life to go, and you know, oh, forget it. It's the hard heart. It's the Herod heart. That's all through the Bible. The other response is this one. God, ah, he's going to hit me with a bolt of lightning. That's going to hurt. The Old Testament, I'm going to drop dead. I'm going to, it's a fear of God. Not a reverence or a respect, but a literal fear of God. Yet the Bible would teach very clearly John 3, 17, Christ did not come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. God doesn't hate you. He's not vindictive towards you. If he was going to get you, he would have got you a long time ago. The other response that you see in the Bible a lot is this. La, 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 la. And we hear, the, we hear this one all the time, right? This is, this is us. La, 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 la. Silent night, holy night. Oh, come all you faithful. Oh, Victoria's Secrets. La, 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 la. All in the mall. I don't want to know what God says about this. I don't want to know how God views this part of my life. I don't, I don't even want to know what the la, 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 la. And you'll see lots of people in the bio, and they'll ignore, they'll tune out. Here's the other one that's all through the Bible this one. It's this one. It's worship. This, this is what the shepherds did. They found the baby and they worshipped him. It's what the wise men did. They found the baby and they worshipped him. This is what the apostle John did in Revelation. He was in the presence of God. The Bible says he fell on his Face. He, he spread eagle on his face, prostrate before God. This is, the, this is the position that connects us to the heart of our God. Not a God that I'm afraid. I'm not afraid of God. I don't want to be at war with God. I don't want to ignore God. I humble myself with gratitude and surrender because my friend, my Savior, my Lord desires to be with me. And this position before God is what aligns my heart with God. God, I accept, I surrender. God, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by your majesty and your glory and the eternal nature of who you are, my creator, my God. And God, this is not religious activity. This is, this is you and me and me before you. 
accepting the fullness of who you are. And when you look through the scriptures and you see people on their knees, ordinary people, there's no super saint involved. There's ordinary people who God showed up in their lives in extraordinary ways. The ones who took that heart position, they're the ones who enjoyed, received life and life to the fullest. They're the ones who locked it. They're the ones who heard and saw and received Christ for who he really is. I ask the band to come up and settle in. And as I do, can I, can I just ask you to kind of think this through a little bit? I think what keeps us off our knees are things like our religious blindness. I need to be on my knees. Jeff, I come to church. I put money in the basket. Every Sunday morning, I find my Bible. Bring it with me. I, you can be, I was, I was incredibly faithful to my religion and never had a relationship with God. Never fell to my knees. The callous familiarity, there is no greater example of that than the holidays. None. Christ is literally calling out to us everywhere we go. We're kind of spoiled that way in our culture. And beyond the holiday, always, the Bible says even creation speaks to the glory of God. We, can't, we literally can't go anywhere on the planet without seeing reflections of God. But to take his mercy, his grace, it's forgiveness, and to forget the price tag. Oh, the price tag. The baby in that manger was not a cute little thing to the father. The baby in the manger was our father God giving his son over to sin and death. What we see as a celebration and a time of joy, God saw as a, as a loss and a sacrifice. It's only Easter that makes it happy because we know the rest of the story and the outcome. And hard heart, hard heart. Guys, the news and the information and the opportunity to know and interact with Jesus, that's Herod. And Herod made choices. His heart wasn't hardened by God. He did it. He chose to take a pass. And he chose to push God out of his life instead of receive him in. And it's, it's the need-bowed position. It's the humility. It's the gratitude. It's the surrender. It's where it all starts, I just wonder, in not just Christmas, but 
in your relationship with God, your connection to God? Which, which response is yours? And we know the kind of the knees is where we need to be. You think about it, pray about it. Ask God to open your heart and your mind. Kind of understand, to hear, see, and receive in a new way the meaning, the purpose, the implications of the creation of Christmas.